to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of J.P. Witter Limited and Commissioners for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. And the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 31. And our starting point for the discussion in this case is the construction industry, and in particular, the problem that the government faced in terms of widespread tax evasion amongst subcontractors. As a result of this, something called the Construction Industry Scheme was introduced and required a range of contractors to deduct a percentage of payments made to their subcontractors and instead hand that over to HMRC directly. This arrangement then allowed the subcontractor to use that money that had been paid on their behalf as credit when it came to working out their overall liability with respect to HMRC. The problems in this case began when we find out that there are exceptions and that not all subcontractors are subject to this construction industry scheme. It is possible for a subcontractor to acquire a statutory certificate of gross payment registration that grants an exemption, and in fact it is especially lucrative to get one because it makes life easier for the contractor, while also meaning that subcontractors get paid the full amount for a job without having to worry about deductions. In this case before us today, J.P. Witter had had a certificate since 1984, but in 2009 lost it for the first time, having failed a review. After an appeal, it was reinstated, but the company kept going through this process of review and appeal into 2011, when J.P. Witter once again had their certificate cancelled, after they were late with a number of payments to HMRC, and in one instance were late by nearly four months. It is agreed between the company and HMRC that there is no reasonable excuse for this delay, but interestingly that is not the basis for the appeal this time around. Instead, the argument before the first tier tribunal was that when HMRC made their decision, They erred by failing to take into account the serious detrimental impact that the decision would have on the company's business. On that basis, the first tier tribunal allowed the appeal, but when HMRC questioned this before the upper tribunal, the decision was overturned and the Court of Appeal also agreed that HMRC were entitled to revoke the certificate. Now, J.P. Witter appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick the case up. The justices began with an exploration of the statutory requirements for getting a certificate of gross payment registration, and these are quite explicit. Indeed, the Finance Act 2004 makes it clear that there are a number of tax obligations that any applicant has to have met within the last 12 months, and the only exception is where there is a reasonable excuse for non-compliance, which, as we already discussed, J.P. Witter did not have. This case, however, is to do with the cancellation of a certificate, and so the key legislative provision is section 66.1 of the Finance Act, which states, quote, The Board of Inland Revenue may at any time make a determination cancelling a person's registration for gross payment, end quote. And this gives HMRC a great deal of flexibility. But just how far can this go? And that's the question at the heart of this case. J.P. Witter were keen to limit this discretion, and they had two key arguments in this regard. 
Firstly, because section 66 does not actually define the basis for cancelling a certificate, it is implicit that the business impact on the company must be a relevant consideration. Secondly, J.P. Witter also introduced a human rights argument by relying on their right to property under Article 1 of the First Protocol to the European Convention on Human Rights, also colloquially referred to as A1P1. To be more specific, the company is arguing that the deduction that is made by the contractor to the contract price owed to the subcontractor under the government's construction industry scheme is the breach of A1P1. The Supreme Court did not agree and instead decided to follow the reasoning that had been set out by the Court of Appeal. In relation to the first argument about the broad discretion afforded to the responsible government body, that discretion does not mean that HMRC are bound to take into account factors that are not either mentioned or even referred to when making their decision. Such an approach would create a great degree of uncertainty and inconsistency in the entire process. Instead, any question about cancellation of a certificate has to relate to actual compliance with the scheme and what the registration requirements are in the first place. Both of these are set out quite clearly within 2004 Finance Act and are very precise as to their scope. The discretion is not there to allow for wide-ranging decisions that account for vague factors such as the business performance of the applicant, but instead to allow for a restrained flexibility where there have been some minor instances of non-compliance that the government is happy to overlook in the context of the overall application. The human rights argument from J.P. Witter also failed to stand up to much scrutiny in the Supreme Court. For a start, it is questionable whether the money deducted from the contract as part of the construction industry scheme is truly a possession for the purposes of A1P1. The Supreme Court did not delve into that question because it simply noted that the right to property is a proportional right, and any interference with property in this case was proportional. When it comes to the right to property, it is accepted that the state can interfere with this right in the context of its own tax regime. This offers member states a wide margin within which to work and means that claimants are unlikely to succeed when questioning a tax law that is contained within statute and is not entirely disproportional. That might seem harsh and blows J.P. Witter's case out of the water with barely a second thought, but allowing something like the right to property to have a broad interpretation would lead to a large number of cases and disrupt the basic running of the state, not only in terms of tax policy, but also a range of other areas as well. Now, moving on, when it came to thinking about how to analyse this case, I first thought that it would be remarkably similar to last week's episode of PBL against the commissioners, as this was another example of a company trying to stretch the meaning of legislation in order to line its own pockets. However, as I researched this further, I actually realised that the issues with the construction industry scheme are much more similar to another recent case that we looked at, Smith and Pimlico Plumbers. And this was the case where we discussed the gig economy. The reason for this is because almost half of the entire workforce in the construction industry, 1.12 million people, are paid via the scheme. Why is this an issue? Well, those people are classified as technically being self-employed, although the reality of that employment situation is open to interpretation. 
Those people do have to pay slightly less in terms of their national insurance contributions, but also lose out in terms of key employment rights, like we discussed in the Pimlico Plumbers case. In the end, it is the employers who are the real winners, as they do not have to pay national insurance contributions at all, and they also benefit from their workers having fewer rights. Attempts have been made by the government to deal with this situation, and in 2014 they prevented workers who were engaged via employment agencies from claiming that they were self-employed. The problem is that this had absolutely no impact whatsoever, and in fact since the reforms were implemented, the number of workers claiming they were self-employed has increased by 18%. It seems clear from this that the government has very little interest in providing a long-term solution to this problem, and are happy to ineffectively paper over the cracks. There is even a political motive behind this failure to act, as the scheme effectively operates as a subsidy for the construction industry, and a lot of the major players in this area return the favour by making substantial donations to the Conservative Party, as was seen in the run-up to the previous election, where millions of pounds made its way into the party coffers. Once again, a legislative scheme that was originally designed to make things easier has been co-opted and manipulated to work for the financial benefit of those with the greatest power in the employment relationship, the employer. This regime lags behind due to the inability to institute comprehensive reform and a lack of political will that stems from de facto cronyism. Meanwhile, the courts have to struggle along, applying a scheme that has its origins in the early 1970s, and workers are pushed into employment arrangements that are not in their long-term interests, and deny them a range of basic rights. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com for providing the theme music. I'll be back with another episode next week, but in the meantime, bye!